Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. My name is Christopher Harris and I'm joined uh, by my co-host Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, we're recording this on a Monday night after the Manchester United-Liverpool game. We'll get to a whole host of topics this week, including uh, news about uh, Champions League, uh, also Peacock with some new um, new enhancements. We'll also talk about some of the other leagues out there, answering your questions too. But we have to start at Old Trafford and Kartik. What a difference a win makes. Um, before this match, and, and early on in this match, United supporters were ready to put the pressure on the Glazers. But a win against a hated enemy changes everything, at least for the time being. What was your take on this match, Kartik? I guess it changes things for a week. But uh, yeah, great performance from United. You saw the intensity that Ten Hag has wanted. You saw uh, the sort of... Uh, 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 Silky play, right? You know, playing between the lines. A guy like uh, Martinez, who he knows so well from uh, Ajax, uh, being able to, to, to be a ball-playing center half, uh, which is, of course, what they've wanted for him. But also a very good uh, man-to-man defender. Saw that in this match. You saw a Liverpool team that was lacking in intensity in the first 30 minutes of the match. Looked out of sorts. Uh, a side that has a disproportionate number of injuries this early in the season. Uh, although I guess there are a lot of teams with injuries right now, which might uh, account for the short summer and, and uh, the kind of odd dynamic of this season with the uh, World Cup in, in the winter. But I felt like Manchester United got a boost from that crowd. And I don't know if it was the Casemiro signing uh, that did it, that got the crowd on side, because it felt like in the lead-up to this match, and I was talking to, to people in Manchester, that this was going to be similar to what we saw in, was it April or May of 2021, right? And, and an abandoned match. And then maybe it was a, just a smart PR move by Manchester United to say, okay, let's unveil Casemiro. Let's bring him into the stadium. Let's bring him to Old Trafford three hours before the match and uh, make a big show of that. And this is a big-time player, right? This is a guy who's won uh, more Champions Leagues than anyone who's playing in the Premier League currently. So uh, if you look at European competition, this is the elite player now in the Premier League. So um, I I guess that created an atmosphere which United fed off of. And I think also uh, the key change 
for me, in terms of the way Ten Hag set up, uh, other than inserting Varane, uh, I think maybe that's a little harsh on Harry Maguire. I don't, I don't think he was uh, the worst player for United the first two matches. But the big change was playing Rashford through the middle instead of uh, playing with a false nine in Christian Eriksen or starting Cristiano Ronaldo. And it seemed the movement and the interchange in, 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 in movement uh, – that we saw up top was really, really good from United in this match and, and, and kind of just changed the complexion of, of the way they play. So uh, they kind of overwhelmed Liverpool. Pretty shocking in that sense. Yeah. On the other side, Kartik, I would argue that I think Klopp underestimated Manchester United in terms of his team selection, uh, starting with the mid- midfield trio of uh, James Milner, Harvey Elliott and um, uh, uh, Henderson. Uh, and, and I think to me personally, uh, Fabinho, uh, Jordan Henderson, Fabinho should have started from the beginning. Um, that, I thought, was a weakness there in the middle of the field. But to me, though, and, and this goes back, this is not just this match, but this is several matches now. Uh, Harvey Elliott, I'm not impressed by. I like him as a you know, passer of the ball, keeping the ball moving, some really clinical passes. But what he's missing is that clinical shot like in front of the box when he has half a chance and he's slow to react and and his shots are just not, you you need somebody in that position who's going to you mean a sniff of a goal is just going to go ahead and and score or at least get pretty close to scoring and i think that's part that's a weakness in in this liverpool side i've seen both both from that starting selection but also on that right hand side this is tough though kartik this is for, for liverpool now what two two draws and a, and a loss uh, i think they're sitting in 16th position now with this victory, you mean the pressure's off United, at least temporarily, and now it shifts to Liverpool. A lot of question marks about this Liverpool side. I, and to me, that was one of the poorest Liverpool performances since, you know, I don't know, it's a very long time. I can't even remember the, the, the last time they were, they were this poor. I, I guess. I mean, I, I don't... I... I don't buy into that narrative. I don't. I think United still have a long way to go, and this was a great performance uh, in a in a rivalry in the in the biggest uh, rival rivalry match they have. And uh, Liverpool have a lot of injuries. Uh, they have some issues in midfield. I think you're right. Fabinho should have started most certainly. I think they need to sign a midfielder. You cannot count on Thiago. This is something uh, that. Bayern Munich knew also you couldn't you couldn't sound, uh, count on Thiago Alcantara. That's why they signed Goretzka when they did, uh, among others, because of injuries and because he's a very kind of specific. He's brilliant in what he does. Don't get me wrong, but he's a very specific kind of midfielder. So I think we're looking at a situation now where. Um, Liverpool will get fit. They will um, maybe sign another midfielder. I guess they're not going to. So if they don't, maybe that 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 that's why they won't win the title. But I, my prediction is, and I know this sounds like a, a contrarian hot take. Six months from now, uh, Liverpool will be ten points, fifteen points, something like that, ahead of Manchester United, and we won't really remember this match. Yeah, I can, I can see that happening. Uh, however, Liverpool needs to get its uh, acting gear. I mean, from what they were shown us just a few weeks ago in the community shield and how good they were in that performance 
uh, to what they were today. Uh, and, and yes, yes, definitely Manchester United showed up in this game uh, really aggressively from the very beginning. And uh, I liked what I saw. I, I liked that uh, Ten Hag was ready to make those big decisions by sitting Maguire. And uh, I think Maguire needs a break. It's It's been a long 12 months. He's been under a lot of pressure. Um, and then sitting Ronaldo, sitting uh, Fred, and, and bringing on kind of a squad that actually were fighting for it. We're really, really going for it. Um, one thing I noticed, well, well, actually two, thing, two things I noticed. Hey, about- one, one thing I should just say real quickly, Fred looked incredibly motivated when he came on and played brilliantly, right? He yeah. came on for the last 25 minutes or so. So uh, benching a guy like him, a guy of good character like him could motivate him. I, I don't know about Ronaldo. It may do the opposite with Cristiano, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, two, two things I noticed from this game were uh, in terms of the television broadcast. One is that uh, NBC Sports's halftime analysis was much, much better. So compared to the criticism we gave them last week for kind of their eh, mediocre or average uh, halftime uh, analysis, this time much, much better and some really good uh, insight by uh, Tim Howard and um, and then Robbie Musto also. And then the other thing too, Kartik, we haven't talked about uh, this, this season thus far, but Peter Drury how good he is, and also, too, I mean, teamed up with Lee Dixon, who, to me, is my favorite co-commentator in that NBC Sports crew. Uh, But uh, Drury and Lee Dixon, I mean, together, uh, in the gantry at Old Trafford before the match, some really good analysis, and and off we go. And, I mean, for me, it's, I mean, Peter Drury hasn't, uh, I mean, made a mistake all season. Yeah, and he's been brilliant. It's really upgraded NBC's coverage. One little pet peeve about NBC today, which was Rebecca Lowe really coming after Robbie Musto after the Ten Hag interview, which was done with uh, Jamie Carragher and and Phil Neville was, or excuse me, uh, uh, Gary, Gary Neville. <laughs> Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher was aired on on Peacock. Uh, she, I thought Musto made some very reasonable points, and I, maybe it's my own biases. I agree entirely with Musto's analysis, and it seemed like Rebecca Lowe wanted to push him and that he wasn't, uh, she wasn't buying what he was saying. Uh, just, I think, to kind of be sort of provocative, which maybe I, I shouldn't blame her. I think she was just taking after what Carragher and Neville did in the interview, which was, uh, came across as a bit of an ambush. But uh, that was my one critique, negative critique of their coverage. Otherwise, they were very good uh, pregame. They were very good post-match. Uh, the post-match to the point that I've seen, obviously, we're recording this post-match. And uh, halftime, much improved. Really good studio. And look, Tim Howard is... I think Tim Howard is making, I've said for a few years, I think he makes good points. He's just not savvy in when he makes those points or how he makes those points. Now, I think he's getting the cadence, the flow, the sort of um, uh, timing of a broadcast and of a quick, tight halftime show better than he has in previous seasons. So I think he's, uh, you give him maybe most improved along with the fact that they brought Peter Drury in. And let's face it, Chris, for, for fans like you and I, uh, who have been critical of NBC in the past, replacing Arlo White with Peter Drury, if you could make one transfer, like one move uh, for a network, that is the dream move. That is effectively like signing Messi or Ronaldo, right? Uh, <laughs> and replacing, you know, some average uh, striker with Messi or Ronaldo. So uh, it's brilliant. I mean, Peter Drury being there makes the whole uh, pre- uh, presentation, the whole performance from NBC Sports that much better. 
Yeah, and that's our gain here in the, in the United States, and then the loss actually for the world feed because uh, Peter Drury no longer calling games for the Premier League on the world feed. So, so we get we get to hear him and and see him every week, uh, week in week out, calling even you know, sometimes two to three games a weekend. So yeah, it's a great pleasure to have him uh, on this side of the Atlantic in terms of the television, even though he's obviously uh, broadcasting from the UK. So one thing I think, Kartik, in our season uh, preview of the Premier League, uh, we talked about, we went through all of the 20 clubs. And and for me, so far this season, and it's only three games in, right? But so far this season, I think the trends uh, look look like they're, our predictions look like they're trending in the right direction, uh, which I think Bournemouth, poor defensively, uh, a lot of question marks about them in terms of whether they can stay up this season. Aston Villa, under a lot of pressure with Steven Gerrard, still not uh, uh, punching at their weight. I mean, to me, they're punching below their weight. Leicester falling apart defensively, not making many transfer moves um, to bring players in to freshen up the squad. Uh, a lot of question marks about that. Everton, who I predicted would get relegated, um, maybe not looking that bad, but still a lot of question marks about them. Nottingham Forest flying high. Southampton getting better and better. After uh, every game and after, after after they got thrashed in the opening game against Spurs, Palace on fire under Zaha. And then Wolves, I think Wolves for me is, have been bucking the trends a little bit. Uh, to me, it actually looked uh, much better in that game against uh, Tottenham uh, than they did in the first two weeks of the season. And then uh, Fulham and Brentford, I mean, to me, which was one of the games of the weekend, uh, other than Newcastle, Man City, of course, and Leeds and Chelsea. There was a lot to choose from, a lot of really good matches to pick from. But the Fulham and Brentford one was a really entertaining uh, West London derby. What for you, though, Carter, any trends, those predictions that we gave preseason, are you, are you surprised by anything that, that's, that's, uh, that we've seen thus far after three games? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, Brentford hit the ground running better than I thought they would. Yes, they lost this match to Fulham, but uh, they they fought back. They were probably unfortunate. There was a, a, a couple of controversial calls in that match. So that's a little surprising to me. Fulham, I thought, would be better than people thought they were uh, because of uh, uh, what I saw last season in the championship, but were kind of um, disappointed by their lack of transfer activity. Um, prior to um, uh, the uh, actually prior to when we recorded Chris and then by the time the season began they had made a couple of the moves that I had hoped they had moved made earlier in the summer uh, I think Aston Villa we were spot on I don't know how many more weeks Steven Gerrard has I think that side's underachieving more than any side in the division Leicester uh, concerns are there you were more concerned about them than I was I'm now kind of with you I'm very concerned about them and I have to give you a hat tip about uh, Palace. Uh, they have looked outside of the first 20 minutes against Arsenal in the first match, looked very good, uh, even in defeats, even in draws. They look a really tidy side. The Southampton, I want to caution the listeners, Southampton will be up and down all season because they have so many young players. They're so reliant on young players. They have a great manager in Hassan Hotel. He's the right guy for a team like this. But my, uh, my sense would be they're going to throw up some stinkers, some clankers during the season. They're also going to throw up some amazing results. They may beat Manchester City. They may beat Arsenal. Uh, and then you might also see them lose a match to, 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 
Bournemouth. That's how difficult it is to play as many young players as, as Southampton's playing. So, yeah, I think the trends are pretty spot on. The only team I would disagree with you on is Everton. That's the team we disagreed about uh, preseason. They have one point. That's it. I, I concede that. But I see it coming together. They've had a lot of injuries. And given the number of injuries they've had and the tr- lack of transfer activity until late, I think they've played pretty well in the three matches, to be honest with you. Yeah, but still, I think with Frank Lampard, he still makes these late substitution decisions in games. So the last 10 minutes of the game against Forest, I think he brought on Onana. And, and you mean, again, he changes the game slightly and, and Everton come back and get an equalizer. But why is he waiting so, so late in these games to make these decisions? Because Everton finished the games really well, but start pretty poorly. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, the thing that I've uh, critiqued Lampard, Gerard, a couple other managers for this season is that they're still operating in a three-subs world where they want to hold on to a sub or two until late. Um, in fact, the opposite of this is Thomas Frank, right? Thomas Frank has made earlier substitutions. Uh, he didn't have to the second week, right, uh, against United because they, uh, they blew him out of the building. But he's made earlier substitutions against Leicester and against uh, Fulham that have impacted the match. Um, also, since we're on this subject, Chris, I should mention Pep Guardiola uh, had one substitution against Newcastle, which was a forced substitution due to Ake's injury. No other substitutions. This is something that I have to say annoys me about Pep. We saw it last season, the game against West Ham at the end of the season uh, when Man City fall behind 2-0 at, up to, at, at the Olympic Stadium, need to rescue a point there to go into the final week of the season ahead of Liverpool, and he doesn't make a substitution the entire match. So um, in the world of five substitutions, where Pep Guardiola is even unwilling to use three substitutions, and Quite frankly, Manchester City doesn't have the depth they've had in previous years. We, we've talked about that. Um, maybe that's going to be what gets them. Yeah, it's interesting in some ways, though, too. There's like for managers, I mean, part, part of it is ego, I think, in terms of like, hey, I set this team up. I gave them the direction uh, to go out there. I picked the starting lineup, and, and this is the team that's going to go carry us all the way to, to the victory. Um, and, and Pep, I kind of sense that in terms of like, hey, I, I know better than the, the fans in attendance who might be calling uh, for substitutions or, or looking at me saying like, hey, why aren't you bringing on more subs? Um, Frank Lampard, though, that's a good point, Kartik, about in terms of living in a, in a world now where you mean he's maybe kind of thinking three subs in his mind or kind of gotten so used to that. But now with the new substitution r- rules in terms of uh, the endless possibilities, it seems um, Maybe he's not hasn't evolved in, in that regard. But uh, out of all the matches you watched this weekend, and I watched a bunch too from La Liga. I mean, the Real Madrid, Barcelona games, Serie A with uh, Inter Milan, uh, Bundesliga with uh, Dortmund against Werder Bremen, which is a you mean fantastic comeback. But out of all the matches you watched this past weekend, Kartik, which one was your favorite? Wow. Um... <laughs> Jeez, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I guess um, 
Well, favorite is is a subjective term, right? So I guess I'll say Leeds 3-0 over Chelsea because I'm steeped in the history of that derby, that rivalry, and was really excited for Jesse Marsh and really excited for, for Leeds supporters at Elland Road and also uh, uh, continue to be perplexed by Tuchel's decisions. I guess the most entertaining match, unfortunately, was the Dortmund-Bremen match, uh, which I say unfortunately because I think that just ends the Bundesliga title race dead in its tracks in week three. But uh, Dortmund's up 2-0. I infamously tweet that maybe I was wrong. Maybe we do have a title race this season because Dortmund has shored up their back line, unlike previous seasons. And then what happens? That was the kiss of death, that tweet. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Bremen scored three times. uh, And that was that. And that's that for the for the uh, title race because the next day Bayern goes out and wins seven 0 so it's over. It's hard though. I mean, if you're a fan of uh, the French football league, I mean Ligue 1 or the Bundesliga, it, it's hard, right? It's hard when PSG wins seven one. It's hard when uh, Bayern Munich uh, wins seven 0 and it's hard because it's like you want to you want that, that that entire league to be as competitive as possible. And you see in the Premier League, at least in terms of, you mean, Brighton or Brentford or, you mean, these teams that are, in, in quotation marks, underdogs, when, when in reality they're not underdogs because, you mean, the, the amount of money that they have to buy in the transfer window is far greater than most clubs in, in La Liga or the Bundesliga or the, or the French League. But, however, you don't get as many of those blowouts and you, you don't get a, a season where, by the third week, the season feels like it's effectively over. It feels like in Germany and in France, we already know who's going to win it. Uh, you could have said that after week two, perhaps. Week, week three was kind of like, hey, let's, let's hope and maybe something will change, like you said, Kartik, in that tweet. Um, but it comes back to slap, slap you in the face. So, But in terms of the matches I watched this weekend, um, I missed the Newcastle-Manchester City match. I watched the highlights, uh, sp- spending time with my family. But um, the Leeds-Chelsea game was, was enthralling. Really, really amazing to watch. Preseason two, in our preseason previews, we, we warned about Chelsea. We said we had a lot of uh, doubts about this team. And Thomas Tuchel especially, we were, we've been kind of harsh on him. Maybe not harsh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe unbiased and, and maybe fair. But this, ga- this game was, for an American... Incredible to watch, uh, entertaining. The fans, you mean, in terms of Ellen Road, we've been talking about this for years, ever since, well, actually, even before they were in the Premier League. What a great fan base that is. Um, and if you go back to the 1970s uh, or even the early 1980s, Leeds against Chelsea would be one of the, the matches that you would want to avoid as a spectator, as a supporter, as a fan, because those are the games that you would have got, seen massive amounts of hooliganism, you would have seen, you mean whether it's knives or rocks or just just violence. Leeds against and Chelsea it, was the it, hardcore it, of the it, hardcore. It actually, yeah, it was the hardcore of the hardcore. And I was going to point out it. It. it often would start before the match. So uh, I've heard stories, not for many years, but um, I was fairly networked with uh, Leeds fans at one point um, 10, 15 years ago. I, Chris, I may have even told you some of these stories privately, but I've heard from Leeds supporters about the times that Leeds hooligans would go to West London early in the week of a match, of a Chelsea-Leeds match, scout 
where the headhunters, you know, where they worked, how, what bus route they took, what tube route they lo- uh, they took. So basically, they could start they, the Friday before the Saturday match. They would know exactly where they were to jump them or or, or engage in in violence. So it, it was not only you would want to avoid the Ch- Chelsea Leeds match, you would want to avoid West London or Yorkshire or, or Leeds the week of the match. That's how bad it was. I, it was crazy rivalry. Uh, for those of you who don't know about this rivalry, just look it up on Wikipedia. It's one of the few uh, derby match or matches that is not a derby, but is a cross-sectional rivalry in England that has its own Wikipedia page because of the uh, the intensity of that. So it's it's great to see how things have changed so much, though, can't it? I mean, glorious sunshine in Yorkshire. I mean, it, it been a really fantastic game. I, I think personally, I mean, I, I was really happy with this result because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a neutral. Um, but however, you know, I mean, I, I mean, Leeds have definitely punched above their weight thus far they've impressed me however i i just still don't see this lasting throughout the season um i mean basically <laughs> enjoy it while you can because i I, th- I think it's going to get tougher for leads clubs will figure out ways to really kind of uh, punish them um on the counter as leads push push up the pitch but uh, and, and i'm not sure oh i'm sorry uh, i'm not sure yeah, when listeners are going to listen to this and if, would, if it would have happened yet or not. But I'm told Newcastle's going to launch another transfer bid for Jack Harrison. So losing that specific player, I think, is something Leeds can't absorb at this point. So where, where does Chelsea go from here, though, Kartik? I mean, I mean, again, we're recording this on Monday nights. The transfer window is still open. I mean, there's still plenty of time. There's been a lot of talk about more players coming in. It seems that uh, uh, Todd Bowie, the the club chairman at Chelsea, the owner at Chelsea, seems to be kind of making offers for anyone who's interested or anyone that's available. Uh, very haphazard buying strategy, it seems. But <laughs> how, how do you turn this around, though? I mean, like, what, what do you do if you're Tuchel? Yeah, it, it, it's uh, uh, the the Frankenstein buying strategy is what a Chelsea fan has coined it uh, to me privately. I think that's what he called it, Frankenstein. Uh, but basically, they're just it's just all of these different pieces, this kind of very random buys, generally buying guys who play the same position on top of guys who are already there, which uh, makes no sense. And then they, then a new manager comes in, inherits a squad, doesn't like the guys he has, and I don't think it it makes any sense. And the other thing I will say, I think, as a, as a tactical observation about this match is that, or, or a player observation, is that Connor Gallagher is a different kind of midfielder from what Chelsea's had for a long time. Um, I don't think they've had a midfielder, a central midfielder, quite as dynamic in, in, in his range of passing and movement as Gallagher since um, a withdrawn central midfielder since, uh, since Michael Essien. Uh, I, I'm forgetting any uh, guys in between that have been uh, as dynamic as Gallagher. So adjusting to having Gallagher in that midfield will take some time, but I didn't feel like Tuchel's tactics lent itself to that. What Tuchel's tactics lent itself to was Gallagher being isolated in midfield and being pounced upon by a, a, a press from from Leeds. And um, I, I just think that... that um, Unless there's some sort of tactical rethink from uh, from uh, Tuchel, some willingness to play uh, through the middle of the pitch, um, Stanford Bridge, where they, their home their home uh, ground is a very narrow pitch, so I should point this out. So I think the uh, 
playing through the wide areas, through Reese James and through Chilwell or, or now Kukurea on the right, um, or Loftus Cheek started this match as a right wing back. That that is a little different at Stamford Bridge than it is at some wider pitches in England. So what I'm finding with Chelsea now kind of is a trend over the last um I, I wouldn't say the first that that first year Tuchel was there, but the last fifteen months, let's say, is this away from home? They're struggling often in matches because they're playing down the flanks, they're playing in wide areas, they're not playing through the middle, and their midfield's getting overwhelmed. Who, regardless of who's in the midfield, whether it's uh, I mean Mount plays very well, but Mount's isolated up top. Whether it's Conte and Jorginho or, or Jorginho and Kovacic, uh, Jorginho Gallagher in this match, Loftus Cheek has played a little bit in in central midfield last season. So I, I think there has to be a tactical rethink. Uh, Tuchel can keep signing guys. Bowley seems willing to spend uh, uh, millions and tens of millions of pounds on augmenting a squad that already has more players than any other side in the league, right? They have more recognizable guys. I mean, they still have guys like Billy Gilmore and um, Batshuayi and Ross Barkley, among others, on their books. Yeah. Uh, So it's crazy. They keep signing guys. So, yeah, you're asking me, what can they do between now and the end of the transfer window? I don't know, because they're just going to keep signing guys, it seems like. Is there any guy that can make a major difference for them? Um, I think Aubameyang maybe does, okay, for for six months, which is, again, very Chelsea, right? Very short term. Aubameyang comes in. We know um, it didn't end well for him at Arsenal, but we know how good he's been in the Premier League, right? 20 20 goals a season a few times uh, during his Arsenal uh, career. So maybe he has a good season, and they just paper over the cracks, and 12 months from now, they're trying to buy another striker. Um, after Aubameyang has uh, come on loan or whatever and, 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 uh, and done well for them or come for a year and hits 34 and, and begins to decline. So uh, there's no long-term solution here. Um, and if they get Aubameyang, okay, maybe they fight for fourth a little harder than it looks like they're fighting now. But yeah, uh, sorry, Chris, for the wrong, long answer, but that's generally my view of what's going on at Chelsea. It's, it's just, I think, aimless It would be the term I would use in terms of their long, bigger picture thinking. Yeah, uh, Obama, uh, pardon me, Obama Young, uh, to me, is not the answer. I mean, to me, like, I, I just did not like him at Chelsea in terms, um, at Arsenal, in terms of the way he played. He often got in the way. <laughs> you mean, Lacazette would take a shot and then, uh, uh, Oba would be in the way or block it or would, you mean, accidentally hit it or, or would deflect it away from goal or, I, I, I just, uh, don't think he's as good as he was when he was, uh, playing for Dortmund. However, I, I do think that Chelsea need a striker, and I think uh, Sterling's a good player um, in terms of kind of possessing the ball, keeping the ball moving, and then cutting in from kind of the left, cutting cutting to the right. However, I, th- I think you do need someone right down the middle, kind of a number nine that's going to be that target striker um, for Chelsea. Who that is, I, I don't think it's over, but... Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a striker in the market somewhere. I mean, but even even Broja too. I mean, Broja. I'd like to see him being used, utilized more because I think he could actually. Uh, we've we've seen that with Southampton. He can actually uh, score the goals if given an opportunity. And that's the thing, though, too. Get, uh, talking about being given an opportunity, uh, Christian Pulisic once again on the bench, coming on late. You I mean too late to really make it much of a difference? And um, 
some people in social media freaking out, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, he's been given so many opportunities. You know, let's just end this discussion here, right? He's uh, Chris, he's been given... Tuchel, I think, likes him, actually. And he liked him at Dortmund and was partial to him when he came into Chelsea. So he's tried him in several different roles to see where he, he, he can stick. And, you know, at some point, you have to start realizing maybe the guy doesn't train well. Maybe there's some other issue. This is three successive managers he's had. Lucian Favre at Dortmund, Lampard at Chelsea, uh, and then uh, Tuchel now, that have um, you know, had some questions about the guy and not made him an automatic starter and have, uh, and, and, and have seemingly tried to give him chances and, and play him in certain roles, and, and he's great one match, and then he's not good the next, and then he gets injured. So um, at some point, pundits in the U.S. and U.S. fans have to understand the coaches – uh, and there's a growing consensus about Pulisic now uh, among uh, even pundits in the UK. Um, they, they see something that maybe you don't see. They're seeing these guys every day. Have some respect for that. And I'm a guy who's not a Tuchel defender, right? I've, I've just spent however many minutes slamming Tuchel's uh, tactics and, and, and the flow and, and the guys they're buying. But I, I, he's come to a judgment on Pulisic after trying him in several different roles. And in none of those roles... Was he, and this is the last point I'll make on this, Chris. You can't just watch highlight clips. You can't just see, oh, they played Burnley and he had a hat trick, okay? You have to be consistently good at top clubs. You have to be consistent every day. You have to train like you play a game on match day. You have to train at that level. You have to train the way Frank Lampard did when he was at Chelsea, and um, since Lampard was one of uh, Pulisic's managers. Lampard was not the most gifted player in terms of his skill level or his uh, natural qualities. He trained like you wouldn't believe. And he was, you know, a thinking man's footballer too. You have to bring it every single day at big clubs like Chelsea. And then when you get your chance, you have to make the most of it and you have to be consistent and you can't constantly be getting injured. So he's had great moments. He's had some great matches. There's no question his skill level is I think, you know, his skill level is top 25 in the world uh, in terms of attacking players. But there's something else missing, and at some point, the people who keep whining about this have to understand that, have to respect this. This is year four for him at Chelsea, and say, well, you know, maybe he is better off at Everton or Newcastle or Lille or, or, or uh, Napoli or some other place where maybe there isn't as much of a burden on him. He doesn't have to train as hard. There isn't as much competition for places. Maybe there's a, a cultural comfort uh, somewhere else other than London for him. I mean, there are all these factors that could be playing in, but I, I'm just sick and tired of it uh, personally. And I, and I think I sense you, you are as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely no agenda against Christian Pulisic. It, it is, I mean, just coaches making coaching decisions. And if he's not playing, it's not because Tuchel hates him or you mean basically in terms of the fit within the squad. And, and like you said, he's had plenty of chances, uh, and I had a chuckle, too, when you mentioned the Burnley game, because in the back of my mind, I was going to say, like, hey, well, what do we remember Pulisic for at Chelsea? And definitely some goals in the Champions League, which were, I mean, great. But that Burnley hat-trick was, was kind of the most, probably the most vivid memory in my mind, too, where he scored those goals. Um, and it's Burnley. No offense against Burnley, but it's, it's not, you're not playing Real Madrid or I mean, PSG and scoring a hat-trick type of thing. So... The, the competitive level and to be a starter on that squad playing week in, week out, um, it's, it's tough, really, really tough. And I, I, and I think many ways, too, I mean, you mean uh, Chelsea hiring, uh, signing Raheem Sterling, 
should send a massive signal to, to Pulisic. I think he needs to move because otherwise this is, this is going to be a miserable season for him. He will get chances if he uh, stays with Chelsea, but nowhere near as much as he wants and nowhere as near as much as he needs to be ready for the World Cup. Yeah, compare him to Weston McKinney, if we're going to have this uh, con- conversation about Americans. Weston McKinney has gotten suspended and worked his way back into the team. Weston McKinney has gotten injured and worked his way back into the team. Then McKinney had what looked like would be a three-month injury, and he got back in, in three or four weeks and worked his way back into the team. And Juventus is the same high-level club as Chelsea. So this is not a statement about Americans. It's a statement about Pulisic specifically, because McKinney is an American, and he has shown he can hang at the the highest level and he has shown he will fight uh, tooth and nail to get his position back at the highest level so I just want to make that clear this isn't all oh, I don't think American players are good or they don't have the same mentality uh, there's something about Pulisic he needs to move maybe it'll all work out wherever he goes but just contrast him with McKinney uh, in, in, what I'm, in what I'm saying many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, Kartik, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news. And this one came late in last week after we recorded the podcast. Uh, however, it's, it's really important to share uh, the big news out of the United States. Yeah, CBS uh, re-upping for six years, which is in addition to the two years, or I guess we've started the next to last season, but we haven't had the the group stage yet. Uh, So they basically have eight more years of UEFA Champions League, UEFA Europa League, UEFA Conference League in English. Uh, This includes, uh, this means uh, that the six years, first six years under the new format, uh, which is a larger group stage, uh, they will have uh, huge news, cement CBS, who have... uh, done their best to, to, to really improve the um, visibility and popularity of the UEFA Champions League and of UEFA club competitions in general to the product in a similar, similar way NBC is now synonymous with the Premier League in the United States. So I think 
uh, this is a big move for UEFA and and for uh, uh, for for the UA for UEFA club competitions in the United States. Whether you like CBS's coverage or not, and I certainly and, and same with you, Chris. We've certainly had our critiques about it. There is no question they have improved the visibility of the competitions. And they have tied a large uh, broadcast network in the United States to UEFA club competitions. And as I said, I, I've seen promotion for Champions League uh, on uh, regular CB on other CBS sporting events, college basketball, golf, etc. Uh, in a way that uh, the Champions League didn't get when they were on Turner. They didn't get when they were on Fox. They didn't get actually even way back when when they were on ESPN. So uh, this is a big move, I think, for UEFA. It shows how happy they are with what CBS has produced the first two years uh, of having having the uh, the Champions League. Is it two seasons now? I guess two and a half seasons now. And, uh, of course, Chris should mention that they fended off uh, heavy competition from Amazon. From Amazon. Yeah, no, this is great news for uh, CBS and, and for soccer fans in the United States. I, I think I think the reason is is that it uh, gives us a consistent home for the English language rights. I mean, we had a few years where it went from Fox to Turner to CBS. It seemed to be kind of uh, hot potato passed around. But here with CBS, like you said, two Kartik, uh, eight more years um, before the. The, the deals uh, expire, which gives it that consistency, makes it easier for soccer fans to find these games. Uh, the deal, so uh, English language rights in the U.S., uh, $250 million a year. What it doesn't include yet is the Spanish language rights. Uh, those are still up for bids, and uh, it looks like UEFA is going to wait and see in terms of the Spanish streaming side, Spanish language streaming side, uh, to see uh, the competition building up there. I think the competition really is it's it's VIX Plus. I mean, VIX Plus uh, recently launched as a paid streaming service. Um, still a long way to go. Uh, I'm sure they're wanting to increase the number of subscribers to that. Uh, trying to make make sure that that's going to be something that's going to work for um, the Spanish language audience. And at the same time, maybe Peacock in Spanish or some of the other uh, Spanish language providers, seeing what they do and see how they grow. So I think uh, that's that's where we're at. Is that uh, actually once the deal's done, we'll, we'll find out uh, how much the Spanish language rights go for. In terms of some of the other news that came out too, um, we're recording this on Monday. Uh, ESPN Plus is increasing their price uh, to nine ninety nine a month, and then also on the annual plan. If you happen by chance to listen to this podcast on Monday night. Go ahead and sign up for the uh, the annual plan because you'll save thirty dollars. You can get it for sixty nine ninety nine uh, before the price increases. Uh, I guess at midnight uh, on Monday night, um, August twenty third is when the price goes up. Kartik uh, Fox has announced some uh, World Cup news for uh, Qatar. Yeah, they plan on taking thirty media. Uh, personalities, on-air personalities to Qatar, and we'll be calling all of the games from its stadiums, uh, stadium for all uh, 63 uh, uh, matches of the uh, tournament. So that's uh, pretty unbelievable, given what Fox did last time in Russia, and what we've seen Fox do, uh, quite honestly, in, in several previous tournaments, right, where they called everything off a monitor. Uh, even uh, Women's World Cup, they would have, uh, I think, two teams they sent to France, right, and, and the other three uh, were off a monitor. Other three teams were calling things off a monitor. So, uh, and also an upgrade, uh, granted we were in a COVID-type uh, uh, world, Chris, but uh, ESPN, 
had, uh, I think, uh, uh, one team really on the ground for the entire tournament uh, in the Euros last year. And, uh, and then uh, uh, John Champion and Taylor Twelman eventually joined them for the, uh, for the quarterfinals onward. But uh, So a, a pretty big upgrade on what we've seen recently in, in uh, broadcast television for major tournaments in the U.S. in terms of that. And uh, I know for a lot of you guys out there, it doesn't matter to you. For both Chris and I, it does matter. We can tell when uh, commentators not in the ground yeah 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 for sure and then last but not least uh peacock uh we interviewed uh executives from peacock uh just just this week and uh, we have three different articles at worldsoccertalk.com that go into a lot of detail about uh, peacock some of the highlights just real fast uh, 4k games in 4k are coming to peacock in 2023 uh the article will go into more detail about that uh they've also got new features on peacock for the uh the premier league uh, viewing experience including catch up with key plays which is interesting because uh when you're watching a premier league match uh say you join join the game late uh you can actually see some thumbnails where it's key plays that have happened uh in the minutes that you missed and you can go to those key plays uh pretty easily to watch it and then click a button to go back to uh, the point that, that you left off on so you don't miss any of the, uh, the match and you get to see the key plays that, that you would have missed in the first few minutes. Plus, there's a whole bunch of other new features, too. So they've improved the, the navigation. Um, but for all the details, go to worldsoccertalk.com and to the homepage, and you'll see there's, uh, I think, about three articles going into in-depth um, in our interviews with uh, Peacock executives. Let's move on to listener mailbag. Uh, first up is Chris talking about the whip around shows that we talked about last week. Chris says, when it comes to whip around shows, I absolutely love them because it allows me to see the action from every match and see results in real time. This is especially true of Major League Soccer, especially when it comes to the final match day of the regular season where playoff places are determined. In fact, the concept of a whip around show is being extended to other sports such as Big Ten college football and even the NFL via the red zone. Speaking of the Big Ten, they are likely to announce at the end of this week, which would have been last week, that they have a new deal with uh, Fox, CBS, and NBC, ending 40 years of partnership with ESPN. With this in mind, do you see ESPN putting in more of an effort to acquire the World Cup or other tournaments in the future, Kartik? Yes, I think the uh, Big Ten loss is a big blow to them. Now, the Big Ten thing, I talked about this a little bit privately with you, Chris, uh, the other day. The Big Ten thing is a, ca- is a case of the, um, the disenfranchised other networks ganging up on ESPN, right? So it took a combined effort of NBC, CBS, and Fox joining hands to take a property away. Although Fox has had, Fox has had a role with the Big Ten for a while also, but it was a, it was a sp- Big Ten-Fox split. But joining hands basically Fox propositioning CBS and NBC to to uh, to create this uh, situation because ESPN is now into exclusivity so ESPN would have the, the threat was ESPN may take the Big Ten away completely at some point um, like they've taken away other conferences uh, and other properties so yeah I do think it, th- there's an opportunity for that I think you will see uh, them really go hard after the FIFA rights uh, in in t- 2030 or starting with uh, actually would be starting with the 2027 Women's World Cup. And then uh, in terms of the Euros, uh, they will not be able to get that back till 2032. But I think uh, they uh, they will try to get that back. Now, 
I have to say, uh, even though we don't know the numbers publicly, my information is, and, and Chris, you may be able to corroborate this, Fox significantly outbid ESPN for the Euro rights. Uh, it wasn't that they they uh, they just topped their bid. They they significantly they paid significantly more than ESPN was willing to pay. Now that ESPN doesn't have the Big Ten and they don't have to, they're not going to be able to bid on that for some time. Maybe that changes the situation where more cash would be available. Uh, so I do think it's a pretty big deal, and I think it's also a big pretty big deal from a programming perspective for the other three networks, the three networks that have a big the Big Ten. Something we'll get into another time. Yeah, yeah. The, tr- the tricky thing about that too. I mean, obviously. Obviously, ESPN lost the uh, the rights to U.S. men and, and U.S. women games, and uh, will lose the streaming rights to MLS. But they also overpaid for La Liga. So, um, you mean in comparison to some of these, you mean the World Cup rights or, or Big Ten and these other things, those are much larger. But still, uh, overpaying for La Liga and still trying to maximize that as much as possible, get as many signups. To be honest, Chris, I had forgotten how much they had overpaid for La Liga until the, uh, doing uh, the article I wrote the other day at World Soccer Talk, kind of doing some a side-by-side comparison of properties, uh, which I did in, in preparation to write that article after we found out the news. And I, I couldn't believe that effectively they're paying almost as much for, uh, for uh, La Liga for a season as, uh, as CBS is going to pay for the Champions League with this new format. Uh, with you know the broker fee, although it's the same broker actually, but the same the broker fee built in, so uh, that that shocked me actually. Um, now maybe La Liga bounces back, uh, Chris. I mean they're, they're in they're got La Liga in an era without Ronaldo, without Messi. Maybe uh, Lewandowski being there. Uh, maybe Mbappe does eventually go there. Although I, it's looking more and more doubtful, right? I mean he now has control of PSG effectively. Um, they really needed one of those stars in La Liga to make that that 217 million a year or so uh, worthwhile. And uh, yeah, they they tremendously overpaid for La Liga. Is correct. All right. So two two more comments from listeners and and listeners. I, I do appre- uh, apologize that usually we have a lot more questions, which we do have a bank of them. However, um, a little bit under the weather today, so just trying to motor through these and get, and and maybe next week we'll go ahead and dive a little bit more into those that we haven't read thus far. But uh, Nick is next. Nick says, um, with the gulf between the Premier League and everybody else continuing to grow, I wonder how you see this trend playing out in the long term. I can't see any way the other leagues and clubs can close the gap without something that's currently unimaginable happens. I hate the idea of a Super League, but I don't think big clubs on the continent will sit around waiting to be fully rele- relegated to status as Premier League feeder clubs. The reality is we already have a Super League. It's called the English Premier League, and these are already six permanent members in all but name. I was thinking about that the other day too, Kartik, too. I was thinking yeah. about after the PSG games uh, and Bayern games on Sunday, and I'm like, I mean, PSG and Bayern are so far ahead of their those teams in that same league. They need to be in a Super League. They need to be playing against these big bigger teams to be more competitive. Um, Otherwise, it dilutes the the regular season of their leagues. But Nick's points about the Premier League being the the Super League, he's right. But I mean, but can, yeah. can can the other? I mean, so the 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 breakaway clubs that wanted to have the uh, who actually still trying to do the Super League, the Juventus, Real Madrid's, and Barcelona's. Do you think there's a way for them to to establish something 
a competitive Super League or something that is going to change their futures? Uh, in theory, yes. But I think as, as time goes on, the hegemony of those uh, six big English clubs and, and the Premier League in general uh, becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. So a, if you launch a Super League in, in 10 years from now, it's possible uh, launching a Super League with Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus is meaningless to large uh, parts of the world. Uh, it would be big in Latin America, big in Italy, big in Spain. Right? So, uh, I, I mean, that, that, that's uh, maybe big in, in Japan. Although, uh, actually, in Asia now, it seems like uh, the Bundesliga is overtaking La Liga. So, um, that's, uh, that's the danger. I mean, you can't do this without English clubs. And English clubs now have, one, less incentive to jump to a Super League with, with, the, with the improved TV deals and the, the growing advantage they have. And two, realize that their supporters will never tolerate them joining a Super League after what happened 18 months ago. So, um, or 15 months ago, whenever it was. It, it's, it, it, it's not going to... It, it, it may happen a Super League. I still don't think a Super League can really compete with the Premier League. So, like, a, a, rhet- a rhetorical question, but w- which is more important, the club, a, a club or a league? And, and, and to me, it's one of those things where if you're a fan of Real Madrid, you mean, you're sitting pretty. You're like, hey, we're the champions of Europe. We're, uh, you mean, one of the best teams. Or, or, you mean, winning La Liga. Even relatively easily. I mean, it's definitely a tough fight, but it's not like it's fierce competition where it's neck and neck down to the final game of the season. However, it has been in, in, in recent years, but, but, not, but not this past season. Uh, Bayern Munich, same thing too. If you're a fan of Bayern Munich, you're loving life. You're like, hey, we are so powerful. We're dominating uh, the German League. We're going to win again. You mean a record, what, 11th title in, in a row. Uh, we're competitive within the Champions League. So if you're, if you're a fan of, of a major club, that's you mean or Juventus, you mean whichever major club it is. Maybe maybe you prioritize club. You mean in terms of how well they're doing and not put so much focus on the league. Maybe you just put the focus on, on on winning trophies. Yeah, yeah, and and then so then, but then what happens to everyone else though, right? I mean, what, what happens to the other other teams in that league and the other teams that get demolished by those uh, by those teams? Um, Ultimately, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, with the Premier League at least, it is more competitive, so it is more watchable. So the league, I mean, Manchester United would say that they're more, probably bigger and more powerful than the Premier League is. Um, I, I disagree with that. But the Premier League as a whole is a lot more powerful in terms of the global TV rights they're, they're getting because of the brand and how, how watchable that league is. It's hard to remember, Kartik, a really boring game from the Premier League. We're three weeks into the season. Yeah, there were some nil-nil matches, but even some of the nil-nil matches were pretty entertaining. Uh, it's pretty rare that you'll see kind of a kind of a, a drab match. Um, you can watch other leagues, and just sometimes, I mean, not every game's going to be good. Some, some games will be boring. Some games will be not much creativity. However, with the Premier League this season, more than any, you're seeing that creativity Every game, I mean, to me, am I wrong? Yeah, am I wrong? I, 
No, no, you're not wrong. In fact, I mean, this goes back to what I've been saying for a while, which is, uh, and I used to hammer the Premier League for this. You know, I used to say, hey, I want, I'd rather watch a Serie A match, an average Serie A match, than an average Premier League match. I'd rather watch a, well, the Bundesliga was more entertaining and, and Serie A, there was more tactics. But now, the tactical variation, and I've been saying it, as I said, for a few years, the tactical variation in the Premier League is unlike any league I've ever seen in my, in my history of watching football. Uh, it, it is, you've got... You don't have 20 distinct styles, but you have 20 semi-distinct styles within the league, and maybe 8 to 10 distinct styles, or 6 to 8 distinct styles. I haven't really thought about this. Maybe this is a good premise for for a written article, but... um, you don't have that in other leagues. So every match by nature is going to be interesting, Chris, because teams are, um, are, are, are doing things tactically, tweaking formations, tweaking setups, the way they play, how, how they attack, uh, based on the opposition and based on their philosophy, which is uh, radically different than, I, I mean, you could argue the Bundesliga, if you just like goals, okay, then maybe you should watch the Bundesliga and not watch other leagues. But I would argue every team in Germany plays basically the same way with one or two exceptions. Um, They've gotten really far down the road of Gengen pressing and and coming out and and playing that way, right? And and playing between the lines and and a lot of diagonal movement in in, in the Bundesliga. So uh, I just think that's part of it with the Premier League. It's just brilliant in terms of its variety, its variation, as well as its quality. And then last but, less, uh, but not least, uh, we have a, uh, an email from John Lambert, and he says uh, about soccer documentaries. He says, for the question about soccer documentaries, six dreams on Prime is good for La Liga. Haven't found a good one with English subtitles and available to stream now for the Bundesliga. That's good. The, uh, the Dortmund and FC Bayern ones on Prime are bland and club-sponsored. And that's been my criticism for a lot of the... Uh, all or Nothing documentaries I've seen, not, not even just All or Nothing, some of the other ones that are put out by the clubs themselves, is that they're so censored and so um, really kind of uh, basically you know, not, not fake, but, but uh, inauthentic in terms of it, not, not giving a, a real reality of what that club is like, but painting a picture, basically a, a kind of a PR exercise, uh, having these uh, documentaries put together that it doesn't really make a connection it doesn't connect me with the actual club itself um it seems fake and 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 for the most part too that's why i've had a tough time finding documentaries that i like and actually i've been burned out by documentaries however kartik wednesday I, i'm gonna give this one a chance and i'm looking forward to it i i'm biased on this one uh but welcome to Wrexham. the series is yeah. it's starting on wednesday yeah. And that's going to be on FX. Uh, we'll have more details on, on the website, worldsoccertalk.com, about where you can find it and what time it starts, etc. But um, going into this, what, what are your uh, hopes for this one? Do you think this could be a, uh, a Sunderland Till I Die part one? Yeah, it definitely will be because uh, uh, I don't want. Well, I, I, there's, I, I don't want to give the teaser as to how their season ended. But, um, yeah, it could be. And I, and I think you've got Ryan Reynolds, obviously, very much invested in it, doing this um, the, the way I, I think it needs to be done. And this is not just like some one of many throwaway documentaries that are being thrown on Amazon or Netflix or, or, uh, or wherever. Uh, this is something that um, – 
obviously Ryan Reynolds himself is invested in the club, but also is going to be on a a uh, a mainstream television channel in the United States and FX, and is going to and, and Hulu has put an incredible amount of promotion into. I mean, quite frankly, I don't think I've seen a soccer documentary with this much promotion. Uh, and, and as I said, it's going to be on a mainstream platform in FX, and then obviously Hulu. Uh, we know the Disney bundle numbers. How many people have that in the United States? So I think in terms of US audiences, at least, uh, this is maybe the biggest one yet. Yeah, I'm biased on this one too, but, uh, because not only was I born in Wales, but also I have family that live just down the road from Wrexham, uh, and that Wrexham's their local club. They've spent a lot of time in that area. And I hope too, in terms of the series, my expectations on this one is I hope we get a feeling for the connection that the club has to the community and how important that is, not just for Wrexham, but for other clubs around the world in terms of what it means to be a local fan in that area and what the club means to, to the actual community. Um, that's what I'm hoping for. But, uh, but yeah, no spoilers. Kartik, like you... I, I was actually hoping uh, Salford City documentary would be li- like that, uh, but it ended up being a documentary about Nicky Budd and Gary Neville and, right, <laughs> and, and, and former United players. Right. Because I, th- I thought the same sort of thing. That's a local club small, uh, in, in, in a borough of Manchester, uh, but it didn't end up being about that. Although there were some elements of that. There were some good pieces to that, that documentary, which I believe ran a couple of seasons. Uh, and we... we yep got it on i can't even remember how we got in the u.s netflix or, or prime or some or some one of the streaming services that's right that's right all right listeners so if you have any questions for us uh, any observations any rants or raves um let us know we'd love to hear from you we'd love to read those out on air uh, there's a few different ways you can contact us one uh, new way is uh, voicemail if you want to leave a voicemail if, if that's easier it's uh, the phone number to call is uh, us 561 561- Two four seven four six two five. Again, that's five six one two four seven four six two five. You can leave a, a voicemail there, or you can go ahead and send send us an email. The email address is uh, web at worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, you can also reach us on Facebook uh, and send us a message through there. That's facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. And on Twitter, at World Soccer Talk. Plus, last but not least, uh, on the website, worldsoccertalk.com. You can go ahead and click on uh, the podcast and then the latest episode and then just leave your comments in there. And we'd love to read those out on air. Um, hopefully next week. Hopefully we'll, we'll get to uh, read those out uh, to everyone. All right, listeners, thank you so much for, for sticking with us. And um, we're looking forward to having you back. Uh, later this week, we're hoping to have an interview with a an American multimillionaire who is uh, an owner of a club in Europe, and we want to find out more details about uh, his story and uh, why he's investing in a club in Europe and what it's like uh, in terms of being in the transfer market and transfer window and having to make some some big decisions. Um, so a real-life um, example of a, a club owner in Europe. All right, Kartik, before we head out, uh, where can listeners uh, find you on, uh, on Twitter? Uh, Twitter at KKFLA737. All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening and uh, heading into another midweek of football. We've got some League Cup matches, uh, of course, and, and plenty of other football from around the world. Uh, Kartik, uh, what, the, what should the listeners do and what are you going to do? Enjoy your football. Thank you. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 